The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Has written a very interesting and sweeping survey of Western cultural life. It's called From Dawn to Decadence. From Dawn to Decadence. And in it, his religious persuasions, at least to me, are uh, unclear. However, he does seem to have, in the way he approaches the, the challenge of history, a Christian orientation. And yet, in his author's note, we read this. By the way, I think any historian who is actually trying to do history has a Christian orientation, whether they acknowledge it or not. But in his author's note, this is what he says, and I think it's telling. William James concluded after reflection that philosophers do not give us transcripts, but visions of the world. Similarly, historians give us visions of the past. The good ones are not merely plausible, they rest on a solid base of facts that nobody disputes. There is nothing personal about facts but there is about choosing and grouping them. It is by the patterning and the meaning ascribed that the vision is conveyed. And this, if anything, is what each historian adds to the general understanding. Now he, of course, goes on to say that the more one adds to a given historian's perspective, the more histories that are written, the more you add to the overall picture, but he says obviously for an absolute view of origins through destiny, one would need a God's eye view. You can't have an absolute copy. You'd need access to the mind of God for that. And he says that. But what he means by God is vague indeed. Is it a limiting concept? Is there some sort of vague faith? Irrespective of that question, What he says in this statement in his author's note actually destroys history philosophically. Why? Because even though he says, and to an extent he's right, that a historian is choosing and grouping facts in order to convey a meaning, that's an essentially Judeo-Christian concept of history, that history must be understood to have pattern and meaning, Barzun says there is nothing personal about facts. But if there's nothing personal about facts, we have destroyed the facts. We have destroyed history. Because if the facts are impersonal, then they haven't been created by a personal God and ordered in terms of the counsel of his will. Now if there's one thing that the psalmist tells us and shows us in Psalm 139, is not only God's sovereignty, but his providence. From the womb to the tomb, his nearness, his closeness, so that the doctrine of predestination is not, as unfortunately some Calvinists have made it, some cold, distant abstraction. It is an incredibly personal reality that the hairs of our head are all numbered, that he bottles the tears of our sorrows, that he knows our thoughts from afar. That's the God of Scripture. 
He is altogether personal. And his governance of history is a personal fact, it is a personal reality, because the facts are personal. If they are impersonal, then there is no pre-established meaning to be discovered. There is no pattern in history to be discovered. There is no meaning to be found because there is no personal God behind it all. So Barzun, in calling for a solid base of facts that nobody disputes, well, in a universe that is devoid of a personal God, in a universe of impersonal facticity, you have only meaningless, unrelated, raw data. You do not have history which a historian can work on. He later relates, and I quote, chance has aided the enterprise, this is his writing of his history, family, time, and place of birth gave shape and direction to effort, insomnia and longevity, sheer accidents helped to crystallize fleeting insights by obsessive recurrence. Now, of course, sometimes we use the term chance idiomatically. We say, well, I bumped into my friend in the supermarket by chance. But I don't think Barzern is using the term idiomatically. His claim then is in direct contradiction to Scripture. If what God says about history in Ephesians 1 and Psalm 139, there is no history. He inadvertently recognizes this when he refers to the Western approach to history in the modern era, saying, and I quote, and the modern era for him begins around 1500, he says, our distinctive attitude toward history, as distinguished from a, say, a Greek attitude or a pagan attitude toward history, our habit of arguing from it turns events into ideas charged with power and this use of the past dates precisely from the years that usher in what is called modern times. It's no mistake that uh, from the Reformation onward there was a distinctly Christian approach to history. Our use of history is predicated upon Christian assumptions about origin and destiny, about creation and the foreordained purpose of God. How does the Bible really take this, take us forward in our understanding of a Christian perspective? Well, Scripture, of course, claims to be an infallible book of history. I've read some good histories. I'm sure you've read some good histories good biographies, good surveys. But they, of course, can very quickly become obsolete as soon as new data, new evidence, new things come to light and great works of the past are later ridiculed because new things have come to light. Well, of course, Scripture, nothing new can come to light that God does not already know. And various histories run alongside the history we find in Scripture, but in Scripture we have an infallible book that where it deals with history, it does so infallibly. When we consider other religious texts and compare them, so-called sacred texts, we have, of course, imitators 
of biblical history, but we have no competitor. The Quran is a 6th century, a 7th century imitation of the Bible, but it is not a competitor. It makes numerous historical errors and mistakes. Other books, books of Mormon and so forth, have ostensibly copycatted the Bible, but they are not competitors. In his uh, superb book, A Christian Survey of World History, Rosas John Rushduni has observed, and I quote, virtually all the religions of the world are non-theistic, that is, they do not believe in God, in one supreme, absolute and perfect God. In fact, most religions are atheistic. They do not believe in God, although they may recognize many gods, or more accurately, not gods, but various spirits and forces. The kamis of the Japanese Shintoism are sometimes called gods by foreigners, but they are more correctly described as powers. The word kami means superior. And the word was applied to any object, thing, person or spirit believed to have superior power or status. In Buddhism, Taoism and Hinduism, not God but nothingness is ultimate. These are essentially atheistic religions and man's salvation is death and nirvana. Animism believes in the power of spirits and holds that even inanimate objects have a personal life or soul. It does not believe in God, but rather in spirits. For in none of these religions is there the God in terms of whom man can say, Thus saith the Lord. No religion has what claims to be the word of God except biblical faith. Nowhere in the ancient world was there any trace of such a faith or of such a book as the Bible. We saw yesterday, and I was discussing yesterday, the immanentistic religions of pantheism, and of course naturalism itself is all about immanence. Without transcendence, some sort of immanent principle built into nature that brings development or progress or change. But the sovereign God gives us through the counsel of his will, meaning and purpose beyond time, beyond change, beyond history. The two most central doctrines then for a Christian understanding are creation and predestination. Origin, destiny. Creation, predestination. Those two doctrines together give us a Christian philosophy of history and it becomes very quickly apparent that there are only two alternatives when looking at historical eventuation, when considering the subject of history. We either live in a world that has been created and is governed by the providence of God, or we occupy an impersonal world of chance or fate governed by the nothingness of the abyss. The existentialists claim to see the abyss with pride. Augustine wrote 15 centuries ago, and I quote, Those who believe in fate argue that actions, events, and even our very wills themselves depend on the position of the stars at the time when we are conceived or born. And of course, this is still with us. How many of your friends and neighbours read their horoscopes? want to know what mystic Meg has to say about the world rather than God. 
But the grace of God stands above not only all stars and all heavens, but angels too. In a word, believers in fate ascribe people's good and evil deeds and their fortunes to fate. In reality, when people suffer bad fortune, God is following up their vices with due judgment. While he bestows good fortune by undeserved grace with a merciful will, he does both one and the other, not according to a conjunction of the stars in time, but according to the eternal and high purpose of his severity and goodness. We see then that neither belong to fate. And yet we have today, even amongst the naturalists, the scientism of the naturalists, a pure fatalism, a pure determinism, atomic determinism. Without the basic assumption of a God-predestined order, no history or science is possible. And it was probably Cornelius Van Til, above all, in the last century, who helped us understand this as Christians. He pointed out that without God, all we have is what he called brute factuality. That is unrelated, isolated bits of data so that no two facts could have a meaningfully sustained relationship because there is no order, no design plan. They are forever unrelated. Now think about this for a moment, friends. You see, this is the challenge to that myth of neutrality. In fact, he illustrated it like this. If you have got one zero, an isolated piece of data, an isolated fact thrown out of the womb of chance, If you've got one zero, and you add ten billion zeros, what have you got? You've still got zero. They are still ultimately, totally unrelated pieces of raw data. Meaningless. Impervious to interpretation. Coming from a sea of constant flux and change. There's only chance or predestination. There is only chaos or God. And if it's chaos, then of course, rationality, science, history, morality, they all collapse. The only way that the new atheism tries to avoid this is to take this universe and all of its order as a given. That is, they refuse to ask the question of origin. Now, they can talk, and in fact, I was listening to the news this morning, and it's amazing how BBC World Service, apparently something's gone wrong with an experiment in Europe uh, with respect to a rather complicated machine and its magnets, where they're trying to uh, understand the conditions of the universe moments after the Big Bang, so-called. The quantum singularity. Well, I've been in discussions with humanists and atheists who say, well, I don't need to ask the question of origins. They accept the quantum singularity or the some kind of pre-existing eternal matter as a brute fact. It just is. The universe just is. Its order just is. They won't ask the question of origins. But of course, we must ask it. We only have a universe, a universe, if we have a God back of all things. 
the very concept of the universe is that there is a unity in the diversity. Else all we have is a multiverse. We don't have universities today, we have multiverses. A pluriversity. Because only with God as the centre of education can you have a university in which there is a universe. Without God there is only raw, unrelated data. Again, quoting from R.J. Rashduni, Systematic Theology, he writes, All things have been created by the sovereign and triune God out of nothing. The total possibility, potentiality and actuality of all things is completely governed by the Creator. All things that have existed, do exist or shall exist have no being nor any history and possibility apart from the sovereign creating power and act of God. Creation and history have no surprises for God. He made all things and all things move in terms of his decree from all eternity. To affirm the doctrine of creation is to affirm predestination and vice versa. To tamper with one is to tamper with the other. End quote. And that is precisely why when creation is abandoned, the biblical doctrine of creation or predestination, they are both abandoned at the same time. And they have been abandoned largely by the modern church. God's predestinating and electing purpose is both general and personal and it is his word we talk about laws of nature we even talk about it in apologetics but it's not accurate there is no intrinsic law of nature that is within nature itself we personify nature even in modern science it's nature is a personification we start giving nature characteristics, attributes, purpose, mind, mother nature does this, nature does that. Laws of nature are simply the governing word of God. It's God's normal way of working. He is the all-conditioning God. Without, of course, predestination, as Paul has told us here in Romans, in Ephesians 1, grace is also meaningless. Because unless God is first and foremost in our understanding of salvation, then of course human works become central and God's grace is set aside. The Bible is clear that whilst proximate determination of a person's life is in our own hands, ultimate purpose and determination is in God's hands. This is what we read in the Westminster Confession. And I quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. God's governing purpose establishes meaningful choice. You see, friends, that the choice is not between God's purposes or God's predestination and decree and freedom. The choice is between fatalism and atomic determinism and meaninglessness or our choices having meaning in terms of God's purposes in history. Are the validity of created 
being and second, and second causes having meaning in the world. Now there is of course mystery here. We can't fully comprehend it. We can't fully get our minds around it, but my understanding is that's the nature of God, isn't it? I can't circumscribe the mind of God because I'm not God. I'm a creature. The biggest challenge facing the church today is we've collapsed that distinction so much that we talk about God today so much so that he sounds like a human being. He's changing, he's mutable. He's confused, he's struggling with history, he's defeated. Paul tells us in Romans 11, Know the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that's our confession. Paul, of course, deals in Romans 9 with those who would say, well, who, how can God find fault? And so Paul says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Now, we don't like this in our time. But this is what God's Word tells us. If fallen man is sovereign, he will constantly be calling God into the dock to give an account of his activity. If we're the governors of the universe, then of course we will perpetually be calling God into the dock to give an account of all of his activities in history and in the world. But if man is in the dock, if it's us who are accountable to God, not this egocentric, man-centered universe that we've created today. We must instead seek first His kingdom and His righteousness first and foremost. Not be complaining to Him about His ways. As one theologian has summarized it, and I quote, Our calling is not to ask idle questions, attempting to reconcile his absolute sovereignty and predestination with our responsibility and accountability. He has declared that it is so, and it is our duty to believe it and act in terms of it. Job was deeply troubled in his misery by many questions and even doubts, but in the face of all this, the bedrock of his life was his faith. He could thus cry out, even as he argued with God, though he slay me. Yet, will I trust him? Let me illustrate these two views of history with a simple division. The humanistic poet, Trumbull Stickney from the 19th century, anticipated an existentialist approach to history when he wrote, Live blindly and upon the hour... The Lord, who was the future, died full long ago. The place of God, the nature of God, in any worldview will always govern the particular religious view of history. Meta metaphysical definitions of time and history are problematic. And if you've ever read Augustine's Confessions and his discussion of the nature of time, 
which is a fascinating discussion. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. There are thorny and difficult questions and problems with respect to the nature of time. They're interesting, but they're not the most basic question. The most basic question about origins and destiny, about history, is a moral question. How do I live in it? What do I learn for it, from it? How am I to be accountable in the context of it? But if we exclude God from history, we discover we are unable to find meaning, incapable of affirming anything about time or history, and both the future and the past collapse. Because if there is no God and no purpose that exists beyond history, there is then no future, since there is no meaning and no consequence in time. There's just the swerve of atoms. By renouncing the past and the future for the existential moment, modern human beings have demanded an apocalyptic moment, an instant paradise without a history or a future. In fact, this was the essence of Karl Marx's dream. For ancient Greek philosophy, time was either static, and thereby time's flow was an illusion, it's Parmenides, or everything was fortuitous, directionless flux. Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher. And these two views are the only two views that are still with us today. Outside of a Christian, biblical worldview. Because there is no supervening mind or pattern. But in God's order, in God's history... In the passage of origin through destiny, we are called upon to redeem the time because progress in history has actually been mandated by God. We are not dealing, as the ancient Greeks thought they were dealing, with endless cycles of repetition where history just repeats itself. Again, this is pervasive, a pervasive view in popular culture. You even watch a film like The Matrix... And that whole series, as it moved into the, the third movie, was all about the repetitiousness of history. Whenever and wherever time is ultimate and not God, history collapses into self-negation and meaninglessness. If time is ultimate and not God, all philosophy ends in negation, which is as illusion with the goal of escape into nirvana, absorption into some kind of abstract one or nothingness. An encounter with the abyss, that's it. What's left then to human beings outside of Christ? Well, there is only the possibility that you as an individual might be able to create histories, a private meaning, a private purpose that you readily acknowledge cannot be true for anybody else. But a history or a truth that might be right for you. Reading some kind of meaning onto the irrational happenstance of time. In other words, superstition. And that's where humanism ultimately goes to try and create some kind of meaning. It's interesting that Freud and Nietzsche were very, very superstitious men. 
In fact, Freud, who was very interested in numerology, tried to predict his own death several times and failed through numerological symbols and so forth. This so-called man of science who made war on Moses deliberately was obsessed with superstition. Nietzsche was equally obsessed with superstition. Superstitions can sound sophisticated and philosophical, but they boil down to magic. Magic is the idea that you can somehow impose or incarnate some idea upon nature, upon reality. That's what magic is all about, control. How can I control the elements? How can I control my existence, my life, my future? Since this is impossible because God's purpose, not man's idea, governs history, rebellion against God is always marked by hostility, futility and heartbreak. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, concluded, man is a useless passion. Only sorrow and despair can result from a human being's rebellion against God's purpose in history. And we have it, of course, in the postmodern view of history. Here, history is denied because the historian is creating an illusion. And historians must be deconstructed in terms of a hermeneutic of suspicion and conspiracy. There is no transcultural meaning in history. There are only histories that uncover the world, that we must uncover in them the will to, the will to power and the will to knowledge. The uh, contemporary postmodern is very much following Nietzsche. Foucault was following Nietzsche. It's interesting, if you were not aware of the connection between the likes of Foucault and Nietzsche, Foucault loved and admired Nietzsche. Even in insanity, he described him as an artist whose masterpiece inaugurates the very time in which his ideas, his art, are to be seen as truth. There is a radical, relativistic, humanistic view here. In other words, for Foucault, when Nietzsche's mind was... Uh, going, when he was going mad, the dissolution of his thought. He said it's a mistake to try and classify, order and cover up his experience of insanity because even there he was creating a masterpiece like an artist who was through it inaugurating a new time, a new age, a new era. The imposition of his idea onto history. This is how these men thought of themselves. They thought of themselves in almost messianic terms. Power produces knowledge, Foucault writes. There is no power relation without the correlative constitution of a field of knowledge, nor any knowledge that does not presuppose and constitute at the same time power relations. Derrida Another postmodern thinker working from the presumption of atheism in the abyss 
denies that language has a fixed meaning connected to a fixed purposeful reality. As soon as you assign definitive meaning to language, you posit a realm of an ultimate word, a logion, a, a logos, a logocentrism. But since God does not exist, no such meaning can be assigned. And so Derrida's conclusion is right. No God, no ultimate meaning to anything in history. My colleague Amy or Ewing has written, the postmodern historiographer Greg Denning argues that recorded history is no more than an illusion of the past and that in reality it's determined by the cultural context and personal preferences of the historian. He claims history is something we make rather than something we learn. And this kind of arrogance was right there from the time of the Renaissance and the so-called, falsely so-called, Enlightenment, where Voltaire claimed that no secure knowledge of anything in history could be acquired prior to 1600. These men basically think that meaning, truth and anything of value begins with them. For Christians, though, the Bible gives us an infallible history, a direction and framework for interpretation from paradise lost to paradise regained. Where the Logos, the Word, gives us meaning and definition beyond history, beyond chance, beyond time. The goal is the kingdom of God and the new creation. That's destiny. And God knew all about it from the beginning of creation. As we're told in Acts 15, known unto the Lord are all his works from the beginning of the world. For the humanist, the perennial problem of definition remains because without the ontological trinity and creation in terms of which all things are comprehensible to God, human beings are left with this impossible task of locating all definition all rationality in themselves and imposing their ideas on the irrational surd, the irrational, meaningless passage of time. That's how hopeless it is. History, therefore, becomes a kind of purgatory, a kind of punishment, a kind of torture. The agnostic and the atheist historiography begins with the assumption that the absolute personal God, the personal creator of scripture, has nothing to do with history and the result is mindlessness and irrationality. Let me draw my thoughts to a conclusion with highlighting these two alternatives. The 19th century thinker Augusta Comte in his book, The Positive Philosophy, abandons God as mythology and seeks to impose a law of three stages on reality. And his model is still very much with us in the minds of people. The first stage of history, he said, was the theological or fictitious. The theological or the fictitious. The second stage was the metaphysical or the abstract. And the third is the scientific or the positive. 
So you begin with the theological and the fictitious moving through the philosophical to the scientific, positive or pragmatic. Progress is from this immature desire for meaning to the scientific realisation that meaning is mythological, so reality must be dealt with purely in terms of pragmatics. That's where we are today in Canada. That's where we are today in the West, in our thinking about almost everything. Comte used this to apply a doctrine of social evolution prior to Darwin to history and consigns, of course, all theology and all scripture to the age of myth. Now, I think in a fascinating book, and I've quoted him several times in this session, A Biblical Philosophy of History, R.J. Rushduni offers an alternative three-stage approach to history that I think has a great deal more validity to it. The first, he says is the politico-magical worldview. The politico-magical phase or stage. The second is the Christian or religious stage. And the third is the attempted restoration of the politico-magical worldview. In the first phase, he notes that apart from the Hebrew nation, this politico-magical worldview governed antiquity. And by magic again, I say he does not mean hocus-pocus and frog's legs and, you know, cat's whiskers and so on. Rather, he means the essence of magic is the effort to gain autonomous control over nature. And I quote him now. Modern science, having steadily forsaken its Christian origins is governed increasingly by magic, by a desire for total control over reality. In the biblical perspective, science is a necessary activity of the godly man and society as they seek to understand and subdue the earth under God and in obedience to his creation mandate. In the magical faith, man aims at total control in contempt, defiance and unbelief of God. Now, control, of course, is often best achieved and most swiftly achieved through politics. So when you look at antiquity, you see that what emerged very quickly was the wedding of political systems of salvation, religion essentially as a department of the state. So if you look at the Egyptian empire, for example, and the pharaoh was essentially an incarnation of the gods. Same is true of the Babylonians, the same was true of the Greeks, the same was true even of the Roman Empire. Deification of men and the joining of religion and politics. In other words, religion becomes just part of a, a department of state so that control can be achieved by wedding the magical, the humanistic desire for total control with the political. One of the reasons why God struck the Nile through Moses and turned it to blood was that the power of the Pharaoh was seen in the Nile. Every year the Nile floods and irrigates the earth and so on and so forth and God had to break the back of this divinization of the Pharaoh as the evening and the morning star. And he did so by turning the Nile waters into blood. 
That's what the confrontation with Pharaoh was all about. It wasn't God pulling out a bunch of nice tricks to try and convince him. It was a confrontation of two claims to sovereignty. A political magical worldview. Uh, Aaron throws the staff down, it becomes a serpent. His magicians copy the trick. But Aaron's staff, the staff of Moses, consumes the serpents of the magicians. The state and its elite in this paradigm were quickly equated with divinity as controllers of ultimate reality. That's what in antiquity was believed about the great kings, the Babylonian kings, the Greek gods. Rishduni himself cites two biblical examples, and I quote, Baal worship in the Middle East was the worship of lords, natural and political, who governed all reality. The political rulers steadily adopted Baalism in order to command that total control offered by this politico-magical worldview. Moloch worship, with its demand for human sacrifice, was politico-magical, and Moloch literally meant king. The medicine men of American Indian tribes had little relationship to religion. Their function was magical and medicine was one facet of their claimed control over reality. Well, we then moved into a second phase. Of course, the Hebrew nation brought the distinction to that, didn't they, in the Old Testament. And it was those kind of groups that they were constantly up against in the Old Covenant era. Well, in the New Covenant era, in the Christian religious phase of history, what had been purely the purview of the Hebrews with the advent of Christ steadily conquered the world. It was the politico-magical worldview against Christianity. That was the confrontation between Christ and Caesar. Say Caesar is Lord. Just offer incense on the altar and you can go and worship your God. That's fine. But the emperor is supreme. The emperor is God. Is an incarnation of the gods. Sovereignty lies there. Well, of course, the church could not accept that. And a war broke out between spiritual war, of course, and for the Romans, of course, there was repeated attempts to stamp out Christianity by vicious persecution. Rome failed. And through Christ, the religious worldview of the Hebrews was restored. Life, salvation were now religious, not political realities. Power and control was all that interested the historiography of phase one. But in phase two, so beautifully described, I think, by Augustine in his City of God, a basic conflict was seen as central to history. The city of man over against the city of God, both cities moving towards their end. All Plato could see in his Republic was more control over human beings in a communistic order exercised by the philosopher kings, the elite. But what Augustine saw was God's providence and governance of history. And the history of the West has been unique because of that. Our third phase, and where we are today, and with this I close, is the attempted restoration of this politico-magical world order by a political and scientific elite. Not only are 
international bodies captured by this kind of a dream but it's even capturing portions of the church truly Christian salvation by the atonement of Christ and sanctification by obedience to his word is today savagely denounced not only by the world but even tragically by those who claim even an evangelical heritage Is the state God or is God the true God? That's the question of our time. God governs history and God will not be made irrelevant to the question of origin and destiny. And he will not be made irrelevant to the meaning and purpose of history. Which leads us to this. Is history going to be the meaningless frustration that so many people think that it is, that the existentialists think that it is, that the postmoderns think that it is, that many in the church today believe that it is. It's true that life under the sun, says Ecclesiastes, without reference to God, is going to be a life of meaningless activity. And that's a destructive lie. The result is either an attempt to force an illusory meaning by this politico-magical worldview, and purpose onto history or the suicidal inclinations of the existentialists. It's suicide or impose some kind of imaginary idea. And if modern science is to be the instrument by which we force this man-made meaning as is increasingly the case, the laboratory being the solution to all human ills, genetic engineering, And all the things that we are experimenting with today. In fact, one of my colleagues, John Lennox at Oxford, was telling me when I was last there in February that not only has the British Parliament now approved the mixing of human and animal DNA, but they are also now, some of his colleagues in biotech areas, working on the mixing of human and machine. And they believe that they are close. Using genetic material to mix with technological components. Now, I mentioned uh, yesterday, and many of you may have thought I was sort of joking or tongue-in-cheek, the importance of science fiction in culture. But one of the, in fact, one of the examinations of this kind of potential is is, is explored in Star Trek. Sorry to trivialize this session for a moment. The Borg. Now, let's just have a show of hands. Who has actually seen any Star Trek? Don't be ashamed, put your hands up. If you haven't, put your hand up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. (laughs) The Borg are this uh, cross being of part uh, bio uh, chemical organism, part machine. Total control. Now these kinds of ideas of mixing professors at Oxford have been working on this. The mixing of human human DNA with mechanical devices. Man and animal. Or the animal with something else. A composite being. Where's the first composite being found in Scripture? Satan. is a composite being in the garden of God. He possesses paradisal creature and speaks through a serpent. 
For us Christians, history is the canvas, though, of God's activity, purpose, and plan, the centerpiece of which is Christ. And his purpose is for the redemption and the restoration and the recreation of the world. We are not caught up in endless, meaningless cycles. Consequently, we as Christians do not seek a futile escape from an irrational history or nature by scientific socialism and engineering. If God be for us, Scripture says, who can be against us? He gives meaning and unity to every event in history. Nothing is meaningless, purposeless, without goal, without reason. So we can sing with Martin Luther, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. History is God's handiwork, and I believe, friends, that he must have the supremacy in all things. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The kingdoms of this world, Revelation 11, shall be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And I know that uh, Heinz said we were not dealing with eschatology. Unfortunately, as soon as you touch on destiny, eschatology does have a way of rearing its head. One question we have to ask ourselves in our own time is, do we believe in the defeat of God in history and the defeat of the church? Is God fleeing history? And are we fleeing it while the world goes to hell in a handbasket? Let's get out of here quick. With Tim LaHaye and the rest, let's escape. Leave the rest behind and leave the Jews to do the evangelism. I don't believe God is abandoning history in despair. Why? Because he ordained it. He created this world and he governs it according to his purpose. And Christ will have the supremacy in all things. I believe that. And I'm committed to that. Our biblical faith gives us every reason to hope and believe. The evidence of things not seen. A belief in victory where all things come into subjection to Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. All dominion, all power, all authority, all principality, every name that is named in heaven and in earth is under subjection to the rule and authority of Christ so that Jesus could teach us to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.